All right, welcome everybody to episode number four of the Illusion of Consensus podcast, hosted by myself, Rav Arora, independent journalist based in Vancouver, Canada, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a tenured professor at Stanford University. We've been really pleased over the last few days with great feedback we've gotten on the launch of our new publication and podcast platform. We are just about to hit 1,000 subscribers. We're just, I think, a couple dozen short. So we look forward to doing that. And then we hope to multiplying that hopefully by 10, hopefully getting 10,000 subscribers in the next couple weeks. That's definitely the goal. So um, anyone listening, um, please subscribe, please share, please get the word out. And uh, we look forward to continuing to bring you interesting and nuanced content over the course of the next several months. Um, so t- today we, we have a great agenda of, of topics to uh, talk about. And so we look forward to uh, discussing it here with uh, Jay. Jay, how's it going? And, and how are you feeling about uh, the launch we had a couple days ago? It's so good to talk to you, Rob, again. It's, uh, it's been pretty exciting to watch the community grow. Um, and it's been fun to talk with you uh, about uh, both the, 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 the sort of news items of the day that are relevant to the illusion of consensus and then also to have to start to have an opportunity i hope over the next couple of weeks or the next few weeks to start to get some deeper into the topic uh just to, so we can really uh pick apart the anatomy of what went wrong during the pandemic it, it to to create an illusion of consensus to create this sort of idea that everyone agreed uh and using that idea uh for scientists to impose policy, extraordinary policy measures that really didn't work very well. Absolutely. So let's get into it here. Uh, The first item we're gonna talk about is the Biden-Harris administration has now announced that they are ending the federal vaccine mandates for, for federal employees, federal contractors and international air travelers as well. You know, for the longest time, you know, myself included (laughs) as a Canadian citizen couldn't enter the United States. Um, And we were actually hoping that the mandates would be terminated a month or two ago, but I believe last month they extended it for another month, which was really bizarre to me. I believe earlier this year, they also kind of extended it beyond January, February, which made no sense to me at that point (laughs) still. Um, but now they've officially ended it as of May 11th. And so people like myself, people in various countries can now enter the United States and employees working for the federal government will also no longer be, be mandated to get the COVID vaccine. So what are your thoughts on that, Jay? I mean, first, it's, it's going to be a pleasure to watch uh, Djokovic actually play in the, in the U.S. Open for, uh, for, for the first time in a long time. Um, I have to say, Rob, it is one of the most irrational policies I've seen in a pandemic of irrational policies. I think if you think about uh, what a travel ban might be useful for as a general matter, you just leave apart the vaccination status. Um, you would do that if, for instance, you have some uh, area of the world that has a lot and lot of people with a, a particular disease that spread very easily um, and then you have another part of the world that's completely devoid of that disease. You want and, and you want to make sure to keep the disease out 
Well, okay, then in theory, although it doesn't work very well in practice, in theory, you might impose a travel ban from the highly infected area to the uninfected area. And for people tr from the uninfected area traveling to the infected area, you maybe would give, uh, give warnings about how to try to protect themselves from the disease when they get there, right? That's, that's, uh, that's the kind of like, I would call a standard kind of idea in public health. Although again, there's complications that often render it difficult or impossible to implement effectively. So, because the world is such a, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's not a place where really we're isolated from each other. It's, it's a really a global world where people move around all over the world. Uh, it's not likely that you can find the rem a remote part of the world that, that's like, like that for SARS-CoV-2. So that's the, that's the background. So even, even in like say February of 2020, when the U.S. imposed a travel ban on China and then later in Europe, uh, it didn't make, really make a lot of sense. The, the disease was already kind of spread uh, everywhere. Um, you know, Iran had a had a outbreak. Italy had an outbreak. Of course, China had an outbreak. The U.S. had a had a first case in January 2020. So the idea of a travel ban didn't make much sense. The disease was already everywhere. Now enter the vaccine. The vaccine, as we talked about in previous episodes, does not stop disease transmission. It's really clear, especially that if someone's had the disease before and recovered, they may have better protection against getting and spreading the disease than someone's just simply been vaccinated. And at, at this point, 2023, was it May 2023, nearly everybody's had the disease and recovered. The, the idea that an unvaccinated person from, say, Canada poses a special risk to Americans such that we sh they shouldn't be even allowed to transit through the country to go elsewhere makes absolutely no epidemiological sense. And uh, so, in, especially in light of this logic around travel bans, uh, it, it, it's, it's really kind of a shame. Like there's very few countries left, and I don't think any major developed countries left that have such a vaccinated, a, a travel ban on, 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 on vaccinated, uh, unvaccinated travelers. And um, uh, I and I and I've wondered what caused the the Biden administration to stick to this travel ban for so long when it became abundantly clear that it didn't make any sense whatsoever and it was inconveniencing uh, the 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 lives of tr a tremendous number of, of foreigners for no purpose. Let me just read you part of the official statement coming from the White House on the termination of these vaccine mandates. They say, "quote." We also put in we also put in place vaccination requirements for certain international travelers to slow the spread of new variants entering the country and to allow our healthcare system time to effectively manage access to care if faced with an increase in cases and hospitalizations. So so that was their purported rationale for implementing vaccine mandates. I mean, the disease is everywhere. What makes them think that a, a variant that arises some other part of the world uh, for an un, uh, is going to is going to somehow not arise in the United States? Um, and they're and they're letting in vaccinated individuals from elsewhere, uh, and vaccinated individuals also can produce variants. It's a equal opportunity variant producing virus, the, the, the vaccine does not stop you from getting or spreading the disease. Therefore, it doesn't also, and so that means replication can happen inside people's bodies that are vaccinated. That means that the vaccinated people can also produce variants. 
you know, there, it reminds me of a, a episode earlier in the pandemic when when Omicron was first discovered. I think sometime in um, late 2021, it was in South Africa, and uh, the, there's a South African scientist who announced the world that Omicron had been found, and almost immediately Western countries blocked access, travel access to South Africa. Almost, it seemed like a punishment for the South African scientists for tracking and looking for variants. Um, these travel bans, they make absolutely no sense. Already by the time that Omicron had been discovered, it was all in South Africa, it was already everywhere. The idea that the disease like this in a globalized world can be contained with these kinds of travel bans is a, is a, is a violation of any sensible person's um, and, and it, violation of any sort, sort, sort of common sense. This, fact, this virus spreads everywhere. The vaccine doesn't stop you from getting infected. Um, and actually, the other aspect of this, we the United States is not even consistent on this policy. The American southern border lets in a tremendous number of people. Uh, you know, we can. I don't want to get into whether the, that's wise or not wise policy. What I want to say, though, is that we don't check for vaccination status there. So it just, it seems to me that if it doesn't make epidemiological, and, and as far as like overwhelming hospital systems, is there any evidence that, for instance, Omicron produces higher rates of hospitalization than previous variants? We have no way of knowing whether that, that would be the case or not, especially given that such a large fraction of the population has already have immunity to severe disease, both by the vaccination and by uh, prior, recovery from prior infection. It seems really unlikely you see a surge that's going to result in overwhelming American hospital systems. Uh, so that logic of that uh, that analysis doesn't make any sense to me either. Um, I think uh, the the problem here is that uh, you have a, a administration that's unwilling to admit they made a mistake. That's really the fundamental problem. That's why they stayed with this policy long after it made no sense. And a, a lot of foreigners in the, that who travel through the United States to get to where they want to go or have family inside the United States. Their families have been disconnected as a result of this really cruel policy. And I hope uh, future administrations learn the lesson from uh, that this one has produced, the negative lesson. I think it it hurts American relations with its friends and friends and neighbors for absolutely no purpose. Let me just remind everyone that just last month, April 3rd or April 4th, the Biden administration extended vaccine mandates for international travelers till 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 this month, where now they're about to be terminated on, on May 11th. So so up until last month, they were extended. I mean, not only are they have they not acknowledged where they were wrong, they've they've doubled, tripled, quadrupled down and extended their policy well into 2023. Right. More than or a little less than than two years after uh, vaccines were rolled out. And I think, broadly speaking, this is a good area to just point out to people just the sort of artificial differentiation of vaccinated versus unvaccinated. Like these two groups as beings, you know, radically different. I mean, the far more meaningful and substantive differentiation is, you know, low risk and high risk. Right. But this unvaccinated versus vaccinated makes no sense because you could have many 
unvaccinated people, you know, you know, young people in their 20s who have gotten and recovered from COVID twice. And you could have people in their 60s and 70s who are double and triple vaccinated, but are still at higher risk given various risk factors such as age comorbidities. So so in, in, in reality, many quote unquote unvaccinated people could actually be posing a lower risk to society, hypothetically, could be posing a lower burden on the healthcare system given how young they are, whereas people of a certain age group who are vaccinated could potentially be posing, you know, not not a huge risk, but a greater risk than unvaccinated people. And so, so do you agree with me, Jared? That's, Jay, that's here? hilarious. I mean, that's exactly right. Yeah. If they really are serious about protecting hospital systems, they should. What the Biden administration do should do is it should ban old people from coming into the United States, not uh, not un, uh, not unvaccinated people, but old people. But, but that's still ridiculous. Like, we, it's we still crazy. Would support that. We would, would support. Would, no one would ever want to want that. It would like yeah. it's ridiculous on its face. Um, you know. Djokovic poses so minimal risk to our hospital system; it's, it's laughable. Um, I just, I just, you're, I mean, you're right to bring up the absurdity of this. Th- that is not a serious justification for a, a, a for a, a policy that has, I think, is not possible to seriously justify. Right, because you don't justify or enact, you know, medical like discrimination on the basis of someone's health choices. I think it was Dr. Vinay Prashad at some point throughout the pandemic, he raised this, this hypothetical of, you know, what if we, what if we limit or reject access to certain kinds of healthcare for obese people or, or say in this case, let's, why, why don't we ban obese people or people over 65 from entering the United States during the pandemic, given the, the medical emergency? Like, why not do that? Well, you know, we, we, you know, we disagree with that based on fundamental you know, compassionate liberal principles that we don't discriminate people based on, you know, their, their, their health choices, right? We, we want to be uh, inclusive to people of all different backgrounds. And I think here we just violated that principle so um, flagrantly and, and, and not only, you know, initially passed the, these discriminatory um, measures, but continued to in, in 2023. And, and that brings me to, uh, the next similar topic, which which is that Biden also terminated the national COVID emergency um, last month in a bipartisan congressional resolution. And that directly ties into um, just a couple of days ago, the World Health Organization also declared an end to the public health emergency of international concern. Uh, Jay, do you, do you think this is long overdue or do you think this is appropriately timed that the emergency is now officially over in May of 2023? I mean, the emergency should have been declared over years ago. Uh, the, 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 the key uh, thing, I think, why the emergency in the United States and why the Health Organization kept it going for so long, a tremendous number of of industries have grown up around this emergency. The testing industry, for instance, uh, the the infrastructure around this emergency has produced, what is it, like 50 billionaires. Uh, you, have a, you have a situation where the, the emergency, the purpose of a public health emergency of, of, of international concern like, like we had 
is to warn people and warn governments that this is about to this 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 sort of of virus is spreading or some pathogen is spreading so that they can get ready and and prepare and and adopt policies that have a a reasonable impact protecting the lives of the people inside the country. We have long passed that stage and the emergency should have been therefore ended a long time before. Uh, you know, if you think about what a pandemic is and, uh, and what, what it, uh, when, when it ought to be declared and when it ought not, uh, you know, when you should move on from it. People sometimes think about the declaration of a pandemic as if it were a simple epidemiological fact, but it's not just an epidemiological fact. In fact, it's a political decision, Rob, a political decision on top of epidemiological facts. Uh, when you have a disease spreading, you have to decide, would the, pol the political mobilization created by the declaration of pandemic make things better or worse? I mean, I think there's a, a colorable argument to make in the context of, of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic that, in fact, the declaration of the pandemic made things worse. It created panic that wouldn't otherwise have been there. Now, there are some things, I believe, that were good things that came out of the declaration of the pandemic. I think we mobilized resources to uh, protect nursing homes. We, uh, in the United States, expanded insurance for, for poor people uh, to cover during the pandemic. We, uh, even Operation Warp Speed, the, the, the rapid development of a, of a COVID vaccine in the United States was, was funded and authorized by the uh, by the by the pandemic declaration. I think all of those were reasonable. What I don't think is reasonable is, and what I think was the cost of declaring the pandemic was that it induced panic in the population at large. It was actually part of the policy was to to create this panic, and the reason why the pandemic declaration took so long to end was because of this panic. There was a political constituency that was created around the pandemic that benefited from the pandemic. Uh, and it's not just an economic constituency. We just, I just talked about the billionaires, but also uh, a, a vast political uh, parties benefited from the existence, a continuing existence of the pandemic because a very large number of people were so scared about the disease. I think the pandemic has ended because now the political harm from continuing the pandemic now outweighs the benefits. And uh, unfortunately, it's a cynical way to look at something that ought to be purely an epidemiological thing, but it's ob very obviously, and as anyone who's lived through the past three, three years can tell you, it's not just simply an epidemiological question. Mm. And in terms of the WHO declaring an end to the pandemic, I was reading this uh, interesting piece by uh, your, lo your local epidemiologist.substack.com. This is the leading science uh, substack publication by Dr. Caitlin Jetalina. Have you heard of that name, Jay? Yeah. Okay. I, I just came across her work for the first time and I was reading the piece and I was curious about your thoughts. Um, she says, we, it's important to be clear that the, the WHO ending um, the pandemic status, um, it, it doesn't mean a few things. And she says, it doesn't mean that COVID-19 is gone SARS-CoV-2 is currently mutating two times faster than the flu. We will get future waves. Um, there, there might be future waves that, that are going to be very concerning. We could go back to pre-pandemic times um, if the virus mutates in, in a certain way. Um, she says, we cannot keep living in a perpetual cycle of panic. 
Um, but uh, there might be some potential issues with COVID um, with its prospects for mutating in certain directions. And she's basically saying that we, that we should be vigilant still. And there are variants of uh, concern that may arise. And so it's important to be cautious moving forward um, to not just think that, well, this problem is gone, but rather that there could be potential issues that could come up in the future. There's an irony here because she and many, many people like her were the authors of the, of the panic. Uh, and she's doing it here again, right? The, the possibility of a variant by itself is not scary. The variant, the other coronaviruses also have, uh, have mutate. Every virus mutates, especially RNA viruses mutate. That's the nature of, of RNA viruses. The question is, what will that do to the population at large? How likely is it to cause uh, a, a, the, the kind of, of, of death and, uh, that we saw in March of 2020? Whatever the mutation turns out to be, it's meeting a population that is a, in a much better place immunologically than it was in March of 2020. A very large fraction of the pop, world's population, probably very close to 100%, have met SARS-CoV-2. Unless you are a recluse who've managed literally to avoid every human interaction for the last three years, it's very likely you have a, a, a encountered SARS-CoV-2. And, of course, a very large fraction of the world's population, I think something on the order of 70%, have received some form of vaccine. So you have a population that is protected even against variants because the commonalities between the variants is that they're also SARS-CoV-2. The new variant is not a brand new virus. It's simply a variant of the existing virus. And what we've seen over and over again is that exposure to SARS-CoV-2 produces immunity that then protects you against severe disease on reinfection. That's been true with, that was true with the vaccine. It's true with, uh, with recovery after, uh, after infection. Why would you expect that to be different? And if it is different, we'll meet it. We'll meet the challenge. But to, but to disrupt the rhythms of the world, schooling, uh, uh, going to go visit your grand, grandparents, uh, how nursing homes function, how, how, how universities function, on the fear that there might be a variant someday makes no sense. And to cause fear and panic, it's scientifically, it's, it's irresponsible of scientists to cause this kind of fear, fear mongering on the basis of, of probabilities that they themselves have no possibility of, of estimating. Um, and in fact, are unlikely. We have to instead be honest with the, the public about what's happened. What happened is that we, uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a world, tried very hard to stop this disease from spreading when we had no technology from doing so. And scientists, rather than honestly telling people that we have no technology of stopping the spread of the disease, continue to insist on incredibly damaging interventions. I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that SARS-CoV-2 is gone forever. Obviously not. In fact, I'd say the opposite. SARS-CoV-2 is here forever. And there's nothing we can do to, set, to stop that fact. The best thing we can do is continue to work to develop better treatments, continue to work to figure out who's really likely to develop severe symptoms um, and, and work, for, uh, work in ways to, to try to protect those populations. Uh, 
disrupting the lives of people, panicking people the way that 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 uh, uh, is doing in that quote, I think is irresponsible. And what do you make of her claim that she's writing here? Quote, the probability of a variant of concerned, which would be named Pi, is still around 20% in the next 1.5 years. If one emerges, it would likely cause a tsunami. Something similar um, would happen uh, to the 1918 flu emergency after it was ended. I mean, it's utterly irresponsible. Where does where is she getting twenty percent? It sounds scientific, but it, it's it's from some model that has a tremendous number of 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 uh, assumptions underlying it. Uh, it it's, in fact, I, let me just go further. I'm going to say that it is a hundred percent likely that there will be new variants. You don't forget about twenty percent. Whether those variants are likely to produce a a epidemic of the of the sort of the 1918 flu, she has absolutely no idea, and she has no way of telling. It's very unlikely to me because the world has already seen SARS-CoV-2 at very high levels. It's not going to be a new virus. It's going to be a variant of a virus that we've already met, and that means that we are much better protected against it. It's a it's a it's it's shocking to me because you know she's not the only one. A very large number of, of epidemiologists have made a, their their names and effectively their careers off of fear mongering during the pandemic, and it it it's a, it was an irresponsible use of their status as scientists to try to to, to do that. And I hope that we develop in science systems to make sure that the, if those voices are 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 are, are uh, uh, arise at some point that equally equally voices of caution and reason are also elevated to 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 at least debate with them rather than censored as it was during the pandemic and what do you make of this of this broad problem that we've seen across the pandemic that these these statistical models right that people put forth whether early on you know two percent four percent five percent of people infected with covid could be dying or models such as the one we talked about last last time about 300,000 lives being lost due to vaccine hesitancy and now this 20% likelihood that there might be a variant of emergency which would cause a tsunami i mean many of these statistical uh, predictions that people have been making throughout the pandemic have proven to be wrong why do you think there's been such massive error by very highly credentialed highly respected informed epidemiologists who have shared these things to the public, which have later proven to be wrong. I mean, you know, it's really hard to like, it's really hard to do science, especially when it's about the future. Predictions are difficult to make. That's just the nature of science. Um, there's nothing wrong with scientists getting predictions wrong. That just, ha that happens all the time. The modeling, um, Again, there's nothing wrong with scientists making models. It helps clarify what our assumptions imply about what our predictions are. Uh, so that's a that's a good thing. The problem is that that scientists have put forward these models as if they were reality rather than just our a statement of our uncertainty about how the world works. And on the basis of that overconfidence in in models that really don't have a fantastically good track record. Uh, we have we adopted policies that were tremendously destructive. The models focus attention on one part of the problem while distracting attention away from other parts of the problem. Right. So I have yet to see 
uh, a epidemiological model that describes the consequences of closing our schools for, for years on end from, for, from in-person instruction. I've yet to see an epidemiological model that put, in, uh, put into the calculus the effect of, of the, the, these lockdowns and supply chain disruptions on, on poverty in the poor parts of the world, on, 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 uh, on nutrition status and starvation as a consequence of that poverty and economic dislocation. The modeling, what it did is it, it focused attention on one thing, what's the probability of a variant arising, while distracting the world's attention from other equally, if not more important things, like what are the consequences of closing schools? What are the consequences of impoverishing 100 million people? And, uh, you know, I think it's one of these things where like, it's well, how could this happen? Well, it just comes back to the, the theme of our podcast, Rav. The voices that were talking about things outside of the models, vital things, caring for children, uh, making sure that the, the, the poverty doesn't get worse, those voices were silenced. They were suppressed. And if you brought those kinds of things up, it was very common that you were, you were seen as a, as a COVID minimizer rather than what you really were, which was trying to create a honest discussion about whether the, the interventions we were adopting would have any effect on viral spread and would it have collateral harms and consequences on the lives of millions and millions of people around the world that would make the, 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 the harms from the virus look small, which is exactly what's happened. Yeah, it, it just continues to boggle my mind, like the way you just spoke about this now. I mean, it's, I, and this has been a big education for me over the past two years. And this is what has led to and inspired this podcast that we're doing and this new publication that we're launching is that my mind has been completely shifted and awakened to just how inept and unintelligent and how sort of obsessively focused public health experts are on certain problems instead of others. This inability to do a rational cost benefit analysis. I mean, it, if it wasn't for people like you, like I, I would think that I'm insane, like looking at the public health authorities and realizing that they're not properly understanding the costs and the benefits. I mean, it's people like yourself that, that validate these many common sense concerns that ordinary people like myself have had. But it, it just continues to boggle me and stun me how very intelligent, credentialed people with decades more scientific expertise than I that I have right now or will ever have in the future, um, how they got this so wrong and how they weren't able to look at the totality of the complex problems that were at hand and only focused on saving lives from COVID, right? That was always the focus. And there was a lot of emotional salience to that, right? If you oppose these measures, then you're going to kill people. People are going to die as a result of your irresponsibility. You want to let the virus rip, et cetera, et cetera. And there was just not a proper understanding of certain other costs. And you mentioned school closures, lockdowns. You know, I, I think, you know, Perhaps emotions have something to play with this. I mean, we know people were dying from COVID and obviously with COVID as well. And so that was obsessively focused on was we have to prevent people from dying of COVID. Um, whereas I, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do my best to steel man this, although I'm having a hard time, but it's but potentially 
you know, that like that was very salient, right? Hospitals are being overburdened. People are dying with COVID and of COVID. Um, whereas the, the costs of, of closing down schools and locking down society, it, it's the, the, you know, the death toll of that is not as immediate or as salient, right, as the death toll right away that you would see from COVID. Now, obviously, like, that's not how you, how you enact public policy is what seems more salient or what kind of touches and, and pulls on your heartstrings the most. Like, you have to be rational and, and, and you know, do a dispassionate analysis of the facts. But that, that, that is what happened. And, and that, you know, I suppose, like, you know, if I was in some place of authority, you know, I would initially potentially be also swayed um, towards the direction that many public health experts took, like right away, you know, people are dying of COVID. Let's do everything we can to stop that. But you would expect people with these credentials and with so much experience to also know that, that this is a multifactorial problem and that there are costs associated with uh, shutting down society that while may not you know, be salient right away or may not lead to hospitals being overburdened right away, but that over time could have a number of downstream consequences that end up making that policy uh, deeply problematic and, and, and deleterious on the whole. I, I mean, if I'm going to steal man this, what I would, I guess I, what I would, the argument would be that the panic was a, a good thing, right? That's what that, that I think is what many people in public health were thinking at the time. Let's, let's put ourselves back in March of 2020. If we can panic the population, then we are more likely to get compliance with lockdowns. We don't need to order. We don't need to mandate. People will just be so scared that they will stay home by themselves automatically, that they will take precautions around vulnerable people. That's, I think, the, the, the best argument one can make for the inducing of panic. Um, but I think the collateral harms from that panic are so great that you should basically never do it. I had thought before the pandemic that, that, that inducing that kind of panic was a, a violation of a basic ethical principle in public health, that in fact, we always would reason and try to calm rather than uh, panic because it's so easy to make people panicked. Our, our lizard brains are built to be scared of infectious disease. Our entire civilizations are built in order to temper that reaction that we have automatically built in at our core to be scared of, of, of meeting the unclean other. Uh, and so public health systems generally have been built up around not using those kinds of panic mechanisms. Once you've rung that panic bell, it's really difficult to undo it. And it induces people to be support very, very destructive things. Um, and it makes it, 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 and it doesn't just affect people. It also infects policymakers. It make, it, it, it turns out it, it infects scientists. It makes it very difficult to reason our usual standards for doing honest assessments of benefits and harms for different policies get swamped by our fear of the, the salient outcome, which is to get infected with SARS-CoV-2. Um, and I think that, uh, that's, I hope, a lesson for the future. That the, there was the the idea that one that in public health we do not induce panic in the population was a very wise rule, and we violated it to great harm during the, this pandemic. Let Let's move on to the next topic here. Uh, Rochelle Walensky has resigned from the CDC uh, somewhat abruptly, blindsiding uh, a number of people. Uh, many people were surprised and stunned. 
why she was resigning, given she's been recently testifying, talking to the media. She's been a very important figure throughout the pandemic. And uh, I, I was reading the statement from the White House, uh, from President Joe Biden, and he said uh, in this statement, Dr. Walensky has saved lives with her steadfast and unwavering focus on the health of every American. As director of the CDC, she led a complex organization on the front lines of a once-in-a-generation pandemic with honesty and integrity. Uh, she, Dr. Walensky leaves CDC a stronger institution, <laughs> better positioned to confront health threats and protect Americans in uh, the future. So, I mean, I, I totally disagree with that statement. I mean, the idea that Walensky is leaving the CDC a stronger institution. I mean, you know, going into the pandemic, uh, and and certainly if we if we didn't have a pandemic, if there was some kind of public health issue. I would be very easily defaulting to the CDC and expecting and hoping that they know exactly what they're talking about because I don't have any credentials in medical science or epidemiology. But over the course of the pandemic, they have lost my trust. And like many Canadians and Americans, the CDC is now a weaker institution, not a stronger one, as Biden is saying here. So we could probably spend hours you know, breaking this down. but. Putting it succinctly, uh, Jay, what is your impression on the legacy that Walensky has left behind? And do you think it is it, it was really up to her? And do you think she is primarily to blame for the misinformation coming out of the CDC over the past couple of years? Or do you think it's much more complicated and there are a number of people within the institutions and a lot of perverse incentives that have led to a lot of the misinformation coming from the institution rather than just, you know, Walensky being responsible for all of it. Well, Rob, you know, the blame is multifactorial and there's, it's a, there's a certainly a lot to go around. Uh, let me just, but as the head of the CDC, she bears a particular, particular responsibility for the, the, the disaster that's happened over the last couple of years. Uh, even before she joined the CDC, in October of 2020, Rochelle Walensky signed a letter called the John Snow Memorandum in opposition to the Great Barrington Declaration that I wrote. The premise of that letter was that there was no possibility of immunity. We didn't know for certain whether having COVID produces any immunity whatsoever. It was already clear by October 2020 that that was not true, that in fact, there was considerable evidence of immunity after COVID recovery. Uh, the, the reinfection rate up to that point had been tremendously low, which should have clued off someone with uh, in, infectious disease uh, credentials like she had. The, um, the, uh, when she became CDC director, the, one of her very first things was essentially to get in front of the American public and tell the, the American public that she was scared about the disease. That was incredibly unprofessional for the head of the CDC to do something like that. The, the, uh, the CDC director has an obligation to, to tell the American public honestly what the science is saying, but to not induce fear, just as we were talking about before. And she violated that. Uh, that was probably my first impression of her as a CDC director was a press conference where she gave, where she uh, went off script and told people in the United States to expect uh, a, a terrible winter that she was she was fearful of it. And this is 
you know, in March of 2021, when the vaccine campaign had actually taken off pretty well, there was a very large number of a uh, fraction of American uh, elderly elder people, elderly people who had already gotten vaccinated. What was she what was she trying to induce fear for? Um, later, she uh, she misread the the effectiveness of the vaccine against stopping disease spread. Uh, she repeatedly told the American people that if you get the if you get the vaccine, you cannot get infected and you cannot spread the disease. Well, that was not true. It was not true at the time she said it. The scientific evidence had already made it clear when she said it in, I think it was like April or May 2021, that that was not the case. And that statement lent support in court settings uh, against vaccine mandates. She she basically she 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 let she lent support to the forces that that wanted to keep the vaccine mandates in place, even though the vaccines don't stop transmission. Uh, she misread the science or misrepresented the science, which a CDC director should never do, at least without correcting it. Um, her uh, at one point she talked about masks as if there, and, and said explicitly that they were eighty percent effective at stopping you from getting COVID. Well, that was not true. There was no there was no evidence, no high quality evidence that su suggested that was true when she said it. And what if people who were vulnerable hearing her say that then went and took risks wearing masks that they shouldn't have taken? Um, over and over again, she misread the science, um, injected fear and panic, whether she ought to have injected calm. Uh, and uh, and then finally, and this this, I think, to answer your question, is the key element of her legacy. She worked with the American uh, teachers unions, in particular with Randy Weingarten, in the early winter of 2021, when she first became CDC director, to close American schools. The unions in the United States, the teachers unions in the United States, the large national unions, worked very hard to, to keep schools closed. Now, now, what they would tell you is that they were asking for uh, provisions to make sure that when the schools opened, it was safe to do so. But we already had a full year of experience from places like Sweden and Europe and, and other many other countries in Europe that showed that schools could just be opened without undue risk to teachers and with minimal risk to children. The children are not super spreaders was, was had become clear by the time that she was work and working with. It's, there's an irony to this because when before Rochelle Walensky became CDC director, uh, she was actually an advocate for opening schools in her local school district in Newton, Massachusetts. It's only after she became CDC director that she, she changed her mind and became an, an effectively a, a, an enforcer of t American Teachers Union's desires to close schools. Uh, I, in fact, I uh, just to give you some evidence of this on this point, Rob, when I in August of 2020, I was contacted by the Florida Department of Education because uh, there in Florida, Ron DeSantis, the governor, had made a decision that he was going to require an in-person option for schools all through Florida. Teachers unions sued the state of Florida, and they and the you, the Department of Education had trouble finding an expert who was willing to fight on behalf of students. I mean, I was absolutely delighted to do that, but it shocked me that teachers unions um, were first making claims that were just not scientifically true about the risks posed to teachers when the scientific evidence showed that children posed, if anything, a less of a risk of disease spread than adults, and that uh, schools had opened in Sweden, just open, no restrictions, no masks uh, in spring of 2020, and the average uh, mortality risk to, to teachers was lower than other 
workers in the population, the average of other workers in the population from spring of 2020. Swedish schools aren't magical. They don't have a ton of extra resources. They don't have magical HEPA filters. They just opened. They just had normal school in spring of 2020. We already knew this, and yet the teachers' unions, in conjunction with Rochelle Walensky, worked to close schools in 2021. Her legacy will be the shattered dreams of a generation of American school kids, especially poor and minority kids, who suffered through extended school closures because of her unscientific uh, embrace of a, of a policy that should never have been adopted. We should have opened our schools uh, like the Swedes did in 2020, and it, keeping them closed to 2021 was a tremendous mistake, and we'll be paying those costs in terms of generational inequality for a long time to come. Mm. And what do you make of the in the CDC as an institution as a whole. I mean, Walensky is out, but do you think there are other actors or other incentives or, or, or institutional areas that have become completely corrupted that need reform, right? Like, I, I don't want to pretend like this is just Walensky. Obviously, you mentioned this is a multifactorial problem. So do you think there are other areas that need reform in the CDC or other potential figures within the CDC that need to revise their strategy moving forward? I mean, the CDC failed. It utterly failed during the pandemic. Uh, from the very earliest days of the pandemic, it failed. It, it, uh, it remember in like, I think on January, February, 2020, it got embroiled in this uh, brouhaha over like, of, over the development of a COVID test and actually slowed the production of a COVID test. Um, it, it should have, during the pandemic, been tracking the disease or, or much better than it did, right? So in April of 2020, I ran a, a prevalence study, a study of antibodies in the population. Well, why wasn't the CDC running that, those kinds of studies very early on? When it finally did run those studies in summer of 2020, it didn't act on them. It didn't act on them with, with the with alacrity that it should have, where, where it should have realized, okay, the disease is too far gone to, to in order to use test and trace to sort of stop it. Um, there were systematic errors in the management of this pandemic that the CDC uh, uh, fell trapped to. And I don't really have an insight into why there's, but it's very, it's very clearly something in the culture of the CDC does, that doesn't allow it to respond to evidence accurately, that doesn't involve uh, involve you know uh, expertise outside of the narrow narrow expertise it seems to have in you know in epidemiology. Uh, for instance, as best I can tell, the CDC did almost no uh, no uh, assessment of, of the benefits and harms of the various policy uh, t uh, po the policy recommendations it made, and those policy recommendations unlike many other regulations in, in, in the federal government, didn't have to go through public comment, didn't have to go through a, a, a strict uh, process of evaluation before they became, in effect, laws. I mean, the CDC will, will say that, no, they don't issue laws. They don't issue regu official regulations. They just issue guidance, scientific guidance. But I'll tell you, Rob, during the pandemic, as, a, as, a, as an expert witness, again, a pro bono expert witness in, in dozens and dozens of, of, of cases involving lockdowns, school closures, uh, and whatnot, what my observation is that the judges treated the CDC's declarations as if they were law. The CDC needs a thorough re reviving. I think there are a lot of good scientists in the CDC, but the processes that it uses to derive, to derive its recommendations 
are entirely uh, uh, ent were entirely broken during the pandemic. They need much better, uh, much much more input from outside experts, a much broader set of expertise inside, so that they uh, so that they account for both the harms and benefits, the harms rather than just staring at the benefits. Um, the the reforms that the, that Rochelle Walensky undertook at the CDC, which is to essentially bring a new modeling unit inside the CDC, I think actually made things worse. Because what it did is it, again, focused attention on a narrow set of outcomes, the ability to model uh, disease spread, rather than trying to broaden the perspective of the CDC so that it could ha make better policy decisions that accounted for, uh, accounted for all of the, the effects of a policy, not just simply the, the benefits as the CDC did during the pandemic. Okay, Jay, we have to take a quick pause here because uh, my mom's downstairs and someone else needs a room, so I'm going to move upstairs. So can we just give me a couple of minutes here and then we'll restart. We'll, we'll, we'll resume. Okay. Just leave it. Just uh, how does it work? Just leave it on or you'll, you'll, you'll slice yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll take it out. Yeah. So it'll, yeah. we'll resume in a couple minutes. Yeah. Just mute your microphone. I'll be back in a couple minutes. Okay. Sounds good.
All right, Jay. Ready to resume? Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, good. All right, okay, so I'm gonna resume from here, all right? Sounds good, one, two, three. Yeah, so I think this is a very important moment for the CDC because over the past couple of years, we've seen many people talk about how we need trust in institutions. And th there's been some strange finger pointing towards, you know, vaccine hesitant people, people who are skeptical of institutions, people who are not following the CDC and the FDA. But I think this is a really crucial time for the CDC to potentially revamp how they do everything. And I don't know how the management works there, how the infrastructure functions. I don't know how much insider info into the CDC you might have, Jay, but this is a perfect opportunity for, for, for however the management there works, for them to recognize how wrong they got certain things, how they increased vaccine hesitancy in some places, um, how they so distrust in in not themselves, not not only themselves but other institutions as well. This is you know, this could be a a crucial opportunity to potentially bring someone else in that is very different from from Walensky, and 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 steer the CDC into a different direction. I mean, again, there's been this problem of trust in institutions and many intelligent, sophisticated people in in public health and in news media and political commentary and podcasting have said, well, it's, you know, the, the people's fault. It's the, the population, the people who are, who are, you know, engaging in conspiracy, the <clears throat> conspiracy theories, it's, it's their fault for distrusting the CDC. But I, th I think the CDC is responsible for a lot of the distrust and misinformation. And I think if they were to bring someone in now um, that could do so much to, regain some of that yeah, that public yeah. trust but i mean I, I don't have my hopes up here but do you agree that if they were to bring someone in this could be a net good for society i mean the the, the trust in public health the, the public's trust in public health at least in the united states is an all-time low as far as i've seen in my career uh the the cdc as far as i'm concerned is in a crisis uh because it can't function without public trust it can't function effectively without public trust it absolutely is time for a thorough revamping of the agency. Uh, but I have to tell you, Rob, I don't have high hopes. The, the kind of agency that picked up uh, Rochelle Walensky, that then lauded Rochelle Walensky on the way out as 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 if she had done a, a, a good job when she had not, um, is, is very unlikely to understand the nature of the reforms that are necessary to turn it back into a agency that that is worthy of public trust. At the very least, what should happen is an honest accounting of those errors. Uh, and I, you know, I, and when there's a, a patient that dies in a medical, uh, you know, like in a hospital or something, very often there's a conference that's held called a morbidity and mortality conference, where doctors and other people managing the care of that patient will get together and have an honest, very frank discussion about what went wrong. The goal isn't to like blame any particular person, but rather to understand the, 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 the systematic breakdown that led to the death of that patient. 
It's called a morbidity and mortality conference. We need desperately, uh, and the CDC itself could hold one if it wanted to, something like that. And then what happens after that is reform so that those kinds of mistakes don't happen again. Um, the CDC, if it's ever to regain the trust of the American people, is going to need to do something like that. And unfortunately, I don't think that the Biden administration uh, either sees the need for it or is capable of appointing a leader that could actually uh, have such an honest discussion. They've gone in the other direction. Mm. So let, let's move on to the next item here. And this this news item hasn't gotten the level of play and attention that the items we've already talked about, but it's, it's very interesting and important to talk about, not just because it's in the news perhaps, but because it's more important generally and that is that the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Murthy, a few days ago, he announced a, a Surgeon General's advisory on the epidemic of loneliness and isolation facing the United States and the destructive impacts it has on our collective health. And I'm just quoting from his Twitter thread here. Uh, he says, at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, we gained a greater appreciation for how crucial how crucial the relationships are to our well-being. The pandemic led to greater loneliness for many, but there was widespread social disconnection even before. Loneliness and social disconnection are more common than we realize, et cetera, et cetera. And there's an interesting uh, advisory on uh, the website um, about the epidemic of loneliness and isolation in the United States and it uh, makes a few interesting points about how we're wired for social connection and how isolation can be seriously detrimental to our health. Um, there's some interesting stats here um, on the U.S. Surgeon General's website, such as living in isolation reduces our chances of survival and social isolation increases the risk for premature mortality by 29%. Poor social relationships, social isolation, and loneliness can increase your risk of heart disease by 29% and increase your risk of stroke by 32%. Similarly for kidney disease, heart attacks, type two diabetes, diabetic complications, uh, as well as dementia, it can, social isolation can increase the risk of developing dementia by about 50%, et cetera, et cetera. There are, there are a lot of interesting stats here. Um, there's an interesting graphic here on the Surgeon General's website also about how social connection influences our health through three principal pathways, biology, so that includes inflammation, gene expression, stress hormones, and psychology, meaning, purpose, resilience, hopefulness, optimism, and our behaviors, which is nutrition, sleep, smoking, treatment, physical activity, leisure, and recreation. And these three principal pathways um, lead to our health outcomes, whether it's diabetes, stroke, heart disease, or even smaller things like sleep quality, um, overall uh, neurophysiological health, and, and more broadly, um, our spiritual health and our connection with, with other people. And uh, just briefly here, um, there, there's this interesting uh, plan here, this framework that the Surgeon General has proposed on how to promote greater social connection in various communities across the US. And uh, we won't have time to go through all of it now. A lot of it is very technical, relates to 
changes that various institutions in society can make. But there's things like strengthening social infrastructure in local communities, mobilizing the health sector, deepening knowledge about social connection, um, cultivating a culture of connection, um, having people reach out to individuals of different communities, having religious institutions, educational institutions, um, recreational institutions uh, further reinforce um, the importance of social connection, et cetera, et cetera. So there's two pieces to this that I want to talk about. Firstly, what are your thoughts, Jay, that the Surgeon General of the United States is now very concerned about social isolation and loneliness, given that this administration was responsible for a lot of policies that exacerbated uh, these very problems. And then after that, we'll talk about just more broadly the, the importance of, of social connection. I mean, it's not just this administration, it's this administration in the last. Uh, yes. I mean, the irony, it, it cuts thick here, right? So it's, um, so first of all, I should, I should say very broadly about the science of, of loneliness and social isolation. I, I, I completely agree with the assessment of the Attorney General. Uh, the Attorney General, the Surgeon General. Surgeon about, General. Yeah, yeah uh, the Surgeon General about about loneliness. In fact, I published a paper um, with some folks at the AARP before the pandemic looking at the effect of social isolation in the elderly population on healthcare spending. And, um, you know, it's there's a lot of good reasons to think that social isolation is bad for your health. Now, it's, it's a little complicated question because, like, you know, if you're if you're uh, sick, you it, you tend not to uh, want to be to have a lot of uh, external company. But on the other hand, seeing your family, being close to 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 to, to your children, to to uh, to uh, having regular opportunities for connection, is vital to our existence. Uh, the UK actually has a minister of loneliness, a position that was appointed uh, that created before the pandemic started, uh, because of the importance of of social connectedness in the health and well-being of people. So I, I think in, in this case, I am entirely with the Surgeon General in his call for, uh, for, for addressing this as a, as a major problem. Um, even going back two or three decades, there was a, there was a, a, a book by this uh, Harvard professor named Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone, which had diagnosed this problem in the United States population of social disconnectedness. Um, so this is a longstanding problem, and I'm, I'm really glad that it's getting some attention. Um, but the irony around the, around the Surgeon General, who did his level best to keep in place policies that guaranteed social disconnection during the pandemic, is is just too thick, right? The 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 um, uh, the, the the problem of social disconnectedness during the pandemic uh, got worse and worse and worse, right? Schools closed for. F- a year and a half, almost a year, two year and a half, two full years, uh, people spread like public health spread panic in the population, so that we we they wanted to essentially what they created situations where we thought of each other as biohazards as a, as opposed to people that were essential to our health and well being. Others are essential, meeting with others, but meeting with friends, social connection is essential to health and well being. Instead, we spread the notion that we are all biohazards should avoid each other. 
social distance, they said, right? They put up barriers everywhere. They, they, they recommended masks that guaranteed emotional distancing to happen. And for children, it was devastating. For older, for, for middle, uh, middle-aged people and young adults, it was devastating. And for older adults, it was devastating. And it's good that the Surgeon General is finally acknowledging this. I wish that a Surgeon General then could also have the honesty to say, look, we made a mistake in, in, in discouraging social connectedness during the pandemic. We should have figured out ways to do that in a more safe way uh, what, to address all the human needs, not simply just infection, uh, avoidance of infections and the avoidance of a single infection at that. Mm. Totally agree with you there. And more broadly, too, I, I think about this a lot, um, especially as a young person who, after graduating high school a couple of years ago, um, online classes for a while well, when I was doing university, and now as a as a as kind of an individual freelance writer, now person running this hopefully very successful operation that, that we're that we're uh, launching here, um, as someone who's working online, which is increasingly um, more and more uh, prevalent, many people working remotely, many people whose jobs are online. Uh, people who don't need to go into the office, that is a concern. And that is something that I think about too, and, and I've noticed um, how working online often, sometimes I get so focused and so invested in the work I'm doing online that I forget about social connection and, and you know, just not having to go into an office, you know, and working from home and, you know, not really seeing many people um, can, you know, not be particularly healthy for overall social um, and psychological health. So, what do you think broadly of of the ramifications of a society that is increasingly becoming digitalized? Work is increasingly moving online. Um, less people have to come into offices. I mean, obviously, in journalism and media, obviously, I mean, in, in, the, in the field that I'm working in, um, a lot of work is going online now. Many people who are running Substacks earning millions of dollars a year. Um, you know, Barry Weiss, uh, Alex Berenson, Matt Taibbi. Glenn Greenwald on, on Rumble and Locals, uh, you know, p- people like Joe Rogan, like they all have their own individual spaces. They don't need to go into an office or go into an institution. And personally, I, I, I'm not particularly supportive of that. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy that I get to do what I want and focus on my own career by myself and, and, and you know, have a standing as an individual rather than as just another part of, of, a, of a machine or an institution more broadly, but at the same time, um, I, you know, I, hypothetically, I would like to, you know, come into an office or be part of, you know, a community to check in regularly. But, but obviously, there, there, you know, there are trade-offs to everything. While many people have become online stars, whether in journalism, media, podcasting, music, comedy, etc., um, at the same time, there's going to be uh, less opportunities for social connection. There's going to be less interactions with with other people, given how so much work has has moved online. So what what do you think of this this societal shift to increasingly becoming online and a lowered uh, uh, frequency of interactions with with people in in real life? Well, Rob, I think it's only a small fraction of the the world's population that has that option. I mean, in the United States, there was a estimate uh, in a paper, right, uh, I think it was like middle of 2020, uh, that only about uh, maybe 20 or 30% of the American population had a job that could be replaced with online work alone. 
Um, and if you broaden that outside the United States to the world's population, it's it's not it's going to be two percent of the world's population that has that has that as a has a as, as even a possibility. Um, uh, I, I mean, it's, I, I'm not saying it's all always bad. I mean, I think for some people, obviously, they benefited from it. Um, you know, like be, being able to like move out of of, of, of an expensive city, raise their kids somewhere out where where it's far away, and still not lose their job in that expensive city um, was was beneficial to some people. And and of course, a lot of there have been a lot of opportunities that didn't exist before as a result of these Zoom technologies. Um, I, I I do think there are there are some real harms here, right? So um, one we just talked about, I think the disconnection, the social disconnection um, is is not good for people. And if you have a, a, a society that's built around socially disconnected work, uh, I don't know that that's all good. In fact, there's definitely some, some problems with that. I mean, I think some of my deepest relationships have come um, from uh, my, 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 from seeing my colleagues, uh, you know, co- discussing with them difficult ideas, uh, collaborating with them, and it would never have happened but for in physical in-person interactions where we, where we, we just happened to start talking about some, some topic or what, whatnot. It's those kinds of serendipitous interactions are very difficult to, to, to um, replicate online. Um, and of course, like I said, most jobs can't be done that way. Uh, the other thing thing I think is a cost is a, is actually uh, a, a political cost. A lot of those jobs that you're talking about that went online, the, the, the people in those jobs, they're really like, what I, I call them the laptop class. Like they, they, they have a, they are tremendously important politically in the developed world. They effectively control uh, what the government does and the government acts in their interest. There, I say, in fact, it's my interest, right? Also, in, that, in one sense, because I also have, I'm a professor, and in a sense, it's, a, it's it could be a, you could view, view me as a member of the laptop class, although I do actually teach in person. Um, so you have a you have a situation where uh, a relatively small elite part of the population has an outsized influence on the political decision making of of uh, developed country uh, governments. And we saw what can happen during the pandemic when governments act on in the interest of that group, ignoring the interests of children, of, of poor people, of working class people. They end up making decisions that 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 can have be tremendously damaging, uh, of course, to the vulnerable, to, to 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 working class people, and so on. But also, I think, in a in a in a sort of like uh, uh, in a sort of, 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 of in a sort of way also to the work to the laptop class itself isolation is bad for the, the laptop class I think in the long run um, for reasons we talked about just just before lonely uh, social isolation is bad for human health uh, social systems that don't encourage social interactions are inevitably I think going to result in worse outcomes than social systems that do. Uh, how do you do that in a, in a population where the technology of social isolation becomes easier is more challenging. I think we can address than, than we can address just in this podcast alone, maybe a future one. Mm. Yeah. And there's uh, increasing popularity of uh, shared uh, uh, workspaces. Uh, I believe there's one called Soho lab. It's very popular locations in LA, Vancouver, New York, Austin, these places where you can kind of rent offices, rent rooms, like a massive building um, where there's lots of different places to eat, for people to socialize. It's increasingly popular because 
a lot of people are working online. So they're just checking into an office space that they're just renting for the day or for the week or for several months. And there's opportunities to socialize and mingle with, uh, with other people. So, you know, that, that potentially might be part of the solution. But lastly, on this point, Jay, um, and I'm not sure if, if we'll be able to answer this here, um, something that I'll definitely explore potentially with other guests um, on the podcast here. But how much do you think this is correlation versus causation? There, there's a 2010 report in the Journal of Health and Social Behavior um, where sociology researchers found that consistent and compelling evidence uh, linking a low quantity or quality of social ties with a host of conditions, including the development of worsening cardiovascular disease, repeat heart attacks, autoimmune disorders, high blood pressure, cancer, and slowed uh, wound healing. Now, do we think that that is, is a correlation, that people who tend to have worsening health outcomes also tend to be more lonely, or, or is there possibly even a causal connection that people who are lonely um, tend to have, that leads to, like that directly leads to worsening health outcomes? I mean, I, I have my gut instincts here, but I'm curious, um, people who are versed in this literature, what uh, their understanding is of this problem. I haven't read the, the, that paper that you're talking about specifically. It's a challenging problem, this problem of reverse causality, because it's true that both uh, social isolation uh, can cause you to have health problems, but also that when you have cro severe chronic health problems, it leads to social isolation because you just don't have the energy to, to interact with, uh, with in, in, in your normal social circumstances. Right. Um, and, uh, uh, and teasing that apart is an empirically challenging problem. My read of that literature is that, uh, as a, as a, as a, from a broad perspective, is that it is entirely biologically plausible that social isolation causes you to have health problems. Um, and, uh, and, 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 that, and while not every paper in that literature is methodologically sophisticated on, on, in teasing apart this kind of reverse causality problem, um, as a, from a broad scientific perspective, it's, it's difficult for me to read that literature and not come away with the impression that there must be some link. And you, you, uh, at the beginning, uh, earlier in the, in the podcast, you mentioned three potential mechanisms by which uh, I think it was like genetic, uh, psychological, and so on. Um, there are lots of biological mechanisms by which that might happen. This is not the kind of thing you could run a randomized trial on. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't like randomly assign some people to be lonely and other people to not be lonely. That, that's just not ethical. Um, so unfortunately, we're going to be left with these kinds of uh, methodological arguments if, uh, and we have to like make our best judgments given those limitations of the literature. And I, I, I said, I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp that this is a, this is a real phenomenon, a real important phenomenon for uh, both policy to address and for people to address in their own lives. Mm. Right. Yeah. In that graphic theory, I'd mentioned stress hormones. So cortisol, which is becoming increasingly uh, uh, of, of focus for many people uh, because of People, great people like Dr. Andrew Huberman uh, on his podcast, focusing a lot of uh, research and a lot of attention on on the negative consequences of having chronically elevated levels of cortisol and how that relates to exercise, how that relates to supplementation, things like ashwagandha, which can be very effective for lowering cortisol over long periods of time. Same with sleep and then crucially social connection as well. Um, I think there's an interesting body of research on how uh, how uh, social connection can 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 modulate cortisol levels, and, and we all know when we're socially isolated, when we're not talking to people, and we're going through various you know problems in our head, various frustrations, and we're not able to you know vocalize that or share that with someone, 
bounce around ideas that can continue to uh, kind of fester in our minds and then lead to more frustration and stress and sleeplessness, etc. So that, that's something that I'll definitely be exploring here in some of my uh, one-on-one interviews, uh, maybe have someone like uh, Dr. Huberman to, uh, to talk about that. Uh, but lastly, we have to talk about uh, the story um, of a uh, pre- the president of Thomas Jefferson University, Mark, uh, I'm going to butcher his last name, but Tikinski, uh, I think I'm going to pronounce it that way, um, Dr. Mark Tikinski, who is a Yale-educated molecular immunologist and academic leader, um, working for several years, highly esteemed, highly credentialed, um, uh, at, at Thomas Jefferson University has done um, a lot of important research. He has recently come under fire for liking um, tweets by Alex Berenson on his uh, on his Twitter account, which which has something like 300 followers. He's not very well known online. Um, but this uh, journalist, Susan Snyder of the Philadelphia Inquirer, wrote this article basically exposing Thomas Jefferson, uh, the, the president of, of, of Thomas Jefferson, uh, Mark for for liking these tweets by Alex Berenson, which are critical of COVID vaccines and other controversial topics. And since then, there has been a an increasingly escalating controversy over there with uh, the, C, the the chief executive officer of the university saying he was very disappointed in the president and his careless use of his Twitter accounts and liking tweets. Um, that are very controversial and, and anti-science. And uh, uh, Mark has, has apologized and, and talked about how you know, his intentions are good and he's not anti-vax um, and how, he, how many of his, his, his likes on Twitter are simply you know, bookmarking various things to review later. And there's this continuing battle between uh, these two sides here. Um, and to, you know, to me, I mean, this is obviously part of a, a growing trend in academia, this kind of this puritanical culture where anyone who deviates from the, the orthodoxy on various issues just is, is deemed a heretic, is demonized, is, is ostracized. Um, but th- there's also this element of this, this, this journalistic kind of warriorship, you know, the, this, this writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer, Susan Snyder, I mean, you know, the gall and the, the interest to, to publish an article like this, trying to expose someone for simply liking tweets is is just remarkable, and th- this level of, of scrutiny and of punishment for simply liking other tweets, some of which were were, were definitely right. Um, I, I know you tweeted about this, Jay. I mean, this is totally dysfunctional to go after people in in this manner simply for liking other tweets, not even for for retweeting or for tweeting themselves or publicly saying anything in an interview, but for merely liking um, these tweets. I think this um, increasingly shows how corrupted academia is by certain orthodoxies on on complex issues. And um, I'm just increasingly concerned for how how people who deviate from these kind of mainstream ideas are are punished within these institutions, which are designed to protect freedom of speech and are designed to to, to focus and to promote um, greater diversity of opinions. I mean, think about this, Rob. What, 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 what? Uh, there's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and for whatever reason, she thought it was a good idea to take her time to go 
trawl through the likes on Twitter of a of a of a, of a president of a university of a local university, and then write a, a, a not just one story but multiple stories, essentially in a bid to try to get him fired. And his crime was liking posts by Alex Berenson. You know, um, it, it's it's such a crazy thing that it's almost it almost boggles the mind to think about. Uh, the, the the first uh, what Alex Berenson, a lot of his tweets that that uh, that that at the time were seen as controversial, a lot of them turned out to be one hundred percent true. Rob. Think about, like, for instance, I think one of the tweets had to do with whether the vaccine stops transmission. He said, no, it doesn't. He said that very early on. I don't, I don't really, I, I mean, it's like remarkable that somehow it was a controversial thing that, that uh, the president of a university liked that post. Um, you know, I, I don't know if he's really being honest when he says he's just bookmarking with the likes. I mean, I, I like likes are a very ambiguous thing, so he could be being honest about that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I like posts uh, to tell people that I've show show the people that made those comments that I've read it. I like them sometimes because they're. I actually do like them. Uh, sometimes I like them in order to to remind myself that that, uh, that 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 the comment is there. You know, as a bookmark. I mean, there's. It's a very very ambiguous thing. Um, to try to use that to cancel somebody, uh, and then you know he he, he but the university basically forced him to apologize. Uh, it's it's a Maoist moment we're living through, Rob. That where essentially you have very very uh, well educated people put under crazy scrutiny by people who do not have any uh, any capacity to judge the scientific basis of, of of opinions that they that they may or may not have, and it's even worse. Because here he, he's not even expressing an opinion; he's just clicking like on Twitter. Um, journalists at, that do this kind of thing should not uh, should not be rewarded. And Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists who who engage in this kind of cancel culture behavior for for no purpose other than to destroy the careers of 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 of, 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 of others, especially scientists, uh, should should be ashamed of themselves. Mm. And, of, and of course, as I mentioned, this is a broader trend within academia. I, I've experienced some of this, you know, myself. Um, you know, when I first started my journalistic career a couple of years ago, I was mostly writing about racial identity politics and how I opposed um, this increasing uh, focus and obsession with with racializing and genderizing and and and. and you know, focusing on immutable characteristics in all areas of American life, using that as kind of the primary filter of understanding reality of, of everything is black versus white. Everything is, you know, male versus female and obviously the transgender issues and whatnot. And uh, uh, I, I've talked about this at various uh, points on various different podcasts, but the, the amount of the amount of pushback that I faced, even within people at my own university, um, you know, including one professor, uh, I believe I wrote about this at the time in a New York Post article, um, this professor who I was publicly communicating with on Twitter about joining this, uh, this, this student uh, group to discuss uh, racial um, issues within Canada. I asked if sort of my um, heretical views that were different from her views and different from kind of what she was pushing, if they would be welcome as part of the student group to debate and to discuss and she literally said on record on Twitter a couple years ago, uh, sorry, no, I'm not interested. We're not here to debate or to argue 
we're here to, you know, promote equity and, you know, diversity, you know, DEI principles and talk about the, the legacy of systemic racism. We don't want anyone with, with, with radically different opinions on this. So, you know, basically, you know, you can't join this club if you, if you have these differing opinions, otherwise we're going to be very hostile to you. And so, you know, th th this is incredibly disturbing in how many uh, administrators just don't have the spine to, you know, reject this kind of behavior and in fact are promoting this kind of behavior at various academic institutions. I mean, this is why we, we need new institutions and why uh, Barry Weiss, uh, Neil Ferguson, uh, Glenn Lowry, a number of others are part of uh, the University of Austin, um, brand new university. Um, there's a summer program coming in, I believe, uh, this summer uh, for, for the second time. And I think Barry said that the first full class, I believe, might be fall of 2024. And it's going to be focused on, on promoting these core foundational liberal values and not engaging in this kind of cancel culture censorship of, 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 uh, of, of heretical ideas. So I, I look forward to some of these new institutions and, and hopefully potential reform in our, in our existing institutions, because this is getting to the point where so many people are being silenced, are being canceled, um, that it's promoting this kind of monoculture, uh, this kind of echo chamber where ideas can't be rationally discussed and instead people are so easily demonized for wrong think. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, the, this kind of uh, this kind of thing that happened to that poor uh, poor university president it, it makes um, it makes me wonder about American society being in a place where that where, where such a thing could happen. I mean, I just it's, I I don't I don't see how it can it's a healthy place. No one really wants to live like this, where where we fear that uh, that we're, we've been seen as like having some kind of wrong think. Um, I I just I I just I, I can't believe that this will last much longer. I think uh, people will rebel against it because they don't. That no, no one really truly wants it. Um, it's only a narrow political group, uh, politically connected group that seem to want a benefit from it, uh, and it's only because they have that kind of political power that it, that it's allowed to happen. When pe if, if people push back against it, it'll stop happening. Like if if the if for instance this. Uh, this uh, reporter, I mean, I'm sure she's gotten an earful from lots of people because now her her behavior has been exposed. Uh, if if, the, if there are costs imposed like that on people who try to engage in this kind of canceling, um, th th it'll stop happening. Lastly, I just want to say on this, um, this is a point uh, Alex Berenson made in his post on this on Substack a couple of days ago. Uh, he noted how in 2000, uh, the Inquirer had 400,000 paid weekday subscribers for the newspaper. And last year it had only 60,000, a number that he says is probably no higher than 50,000 now, which is, which is a reasonable uh, inference. And it only has 140,000 digital subscribers. And what's, what's remarkable is that so many independent publications have, have a much larger subscriber base. I mean, Alex Berenson has over, I believe, 375,000 subscribers on his own Substack. So, you know, he, he himself is bigger than the Philadelphia Inquirer. I mean, that, that's pretty incredible and showing how, you know, people are losing interest in some of these mainstream uh, media outlets who were very popular during the Trump years, um, especially. But over the past couple of years, they've increasingly become uh, uh, irrelevant as they've, 
you know, focused on certain niche, um, you know, up, upper class sort of liberal, you know, trendy issues pertaining to identity politics and social media, while ignoring you know, many other issues that ordinary citizens care about. So it's, it's an interesting journalistic trend. And I think, you know, papers like the Philadelphia Inquirer, who are you know, publishing things like this, they're going to have to reevaluate uh, their strategy moving forward, um, given how how radically they're they're hemorrhaging their their own readers and how many readers are now moving to uh, places like Substack, listening to podcasts instead of cable news. Um, I, I think it's an interesting trend that will either force um, media outlets to reevaluate what they're doing, or it's just going to lead to their demise, as has already been the case. Uh, you know, Vice News recently uh, declared bankruptcy. Uh, BuzzFeed News is now folding. Um, a number of uh, other popular outlets. Um, I remember reading that there, there were several other ones that are also now uh, closing and are and are no longer um, vi- vi- you know, financially viable institutions because uh, increasingly people are no longer interested in in what they have to say, especially over um, the course of the Trump years and now you know throughout COVID. There's uh, there's a, a lack of interest in in journalism that. Um, is focusing on certain kind of niche uh, issues that ordinary Americans are just not that interested in. So this is something that uh, we'll continue to uh, track and see how it uh, unfolds over time. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty exciting. I mean, we, we, uh, it's hard to imagine doing something like what we're doing right now uh, without having an opportunity, like having a platform like, uh, like Substack to do it with. Um, and I think uh, it. We'll, we'll see how it evolves. I mean, I, I don't think big institutions will. Uh, all of them will fold. I, I mean, I don't, I don't anticipate the New York Times folding, right. but I do think yeah. that uh, that the presence of competition from the outside can only be a good thing. Mm. Yeah, and, and and obviously credit to Alex Berenson for you know for writing this and reporting on it, and and obviously we would welcome him on this podcast, whether it's me and him one on one or with you as well, Jay. Right? We would obviously. Well, welcome that and bring other people on the podcast and uh, bring a diversity of opinions and, and see where we agree and see where we disagree. I think um, it's it's uh, a, a a promising project uh, moving forward. And uh, hopefully, I think um, next time we're recording in a week, hopefully we have um, a few thousand subscribers. Uh, like I said, we're, we're about to crack 1,000. We're just uh, a little lower than that. So Hopefully, as we uh, increase our audience, there's going to be more interest uh, for some of these topics. And uh, we look forward to uh, engaging with uh, our uh, readers and listeners. I can't wait. This community is going to be fantastic. It already is fantastic, Rob. And um, you know, it's going to be uh, a, a nice adventure trying to overturn this uh, this this crazy environment we found ourselves in as a result of the pandemic and the response to it. Mm. All right. Great talking to you, Jay, and everyone listening. uh, Appreciate it. Please share. Please subscribe on Spotify and Apple, obviously. And of course, sign up to our our newsletter um, for free. Or if you want access to a certain amount of uh, exclusive content, you can become a paid subscriber. But otherwise, we, we appreciate everyone for listening and for sharing and for being interested in this content. And uh, we look forward to bringing you the next episode. Take care, everyone.